0: It's entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum. It is the last 11 public lectures that Rudolf Steiner gave in his life. They were given in Basel, Dornach, uh, Prague, Vienna, and Paris, translated by Matthew Barton. 11 lectures. Lecture 1 is entitled The Purpose of the Gertianum and the Aims of Anthroposophy, given in Basel on the 9th of April, 1923. The catastrophic fire on New Year's Eve a year ago destroyed the Gertianum which many to whom it was dear remember now with pain and sorrow. The talk I will give today on anthroposophic insights and outlooks refers back to this catastrophe, but is not intended to dwell upon it at length. The lecture today will not differ greatly from others I have given for many years now in this same hall in Basel. In fact, the devastating fire revealed what outlandish ideas people in general hold about everything that the Gurtianum was intended to embody, and all that should have taken place there. They speak of the dire superstitions that were to have been disseminated there, the anti-religious impulses and spiritualist invocations, the nebulous mysticism that we were supposedly going to propound, and so on and so forth. Today, responding to some of these things, at least, I'd like to consider what the aim is of the anthroposophy to which the Gertianum was dedicated. The very name Gertianum was a cause of annoyance to many who failed to reflect on the deeper aspects giving rise to this name and how they relate to the anthroposophy cultivated there this anthroposophy itself emerged for me in a living way over more than four decades through my preoccupation with Goethe's worldview and his whole oeuvre. But it must be said that mere consideration of Goethe's worldview and his works will not immediately and logically give rise to what we mean by Goethean. This alone will not reveal what led to us choosing the name Goetheanum for the building in Dornach. I put it like this. There is a logic of thinking and then also a logic of life, and if, rather than engaging with Goethe merely through an intellectual logic, but instead embracing Goethe's thought, with all the vital stimulus contained therein, trying to gain from it what can be gained, now that so many further decades of humanity's evolution have passed, since Goethe's death, we will find, however we may otherwise regard the truth and value of anthroposophy, that it arose only by virtue of the living impulses of Goetheanism, through a living necessity, through experience of what does actually lie, germinally, in Goethe, and by cultivating, in all modesty, the plant that grows forth from his work. Now the original name of the Gertianum was the Johannes or John building, given it by friends of the Anthroposophic Outlook, who more than ten years ago now instigated the building project. This name, the Johannes building, has nothing whatever to do with the evangelist John, but was taken, not by me, but by others, from one of the protagonists in my mystery plays. Johannes Thomasius, And this was because the Gertianum was, among other things, intended for staging these mystery plays. Naturally, a misunderstanding arose here, and it was thought that a reference was also intended to the author of the Gospel of St. John. That is why I often said, in this hall too, during the years when the Gertianum was under construction, that the building took its name from Goethe because I derived my outlook in a living way from him. And then this name was officially taken up to by friends of the Anthroposophic movement. I have never regarded this in any other light than as a form of gratitude toward what we can gain from Goethe, an act of dedication toward the towering individual Goethe. It is not, though, as if what lies in Goethe's works themselves should be cultivated in the best or loveliest way at the gertianum in Dornach, but rather that the anthroposophic worldview feels the deepest gratitude toward what Goethe brought to birth. Thus, if we see the name of the Gertianum as originating in an act of grateful dedication, I do not think this can give cause for offense. At the same time, it is understandable if someone with no knowledge of the anthroposophic outlook Encountering this building on the hill at Dorna, were to be oddly struck by the double cupola form, by the unfamiliar and seemingly odd forms of both the exterior and interior of the building, and so on. And yet this building emerged with inner artistic coherence from what is intended as the anthroposophic outlook. And therefore I can best describe the purpose of the building if I now try in a somewhat different form from accounts I have given over many previous years, to answer the question, what is the aim of Anthroposophy? Anthroposophy seeks, firstly, to be knowledge of the world of spirit, a knowledge of the world of spirit that is fit and able to stand alongside the magnificent edifice of modern science. It seeks to stand beside modern science, both in terms of its scientific rigor and by virtue of the fact that those who wish not only to inwardly absorb anthroposophy but also to develop it must above all first have passed through the school of serious discipline as this is practiced today in scientific inquiry. Hence anthroposophy seeks to be the very opposite of how, as I described it, the world views it. It is astonishing, really, that ideas the very opposite of our real underlying intentions can become fixed in public discourse. The views of the world about Anthroposophy, as I described them, are certainly not Anthroposophy, which seeks, rather, to be serious inquiry into and knowledge of the world of spirit. Now, as you know, everything purporting to be knowledge of the spiritual world is regarded somewhat disparagingly or at least dubiously today, the scientific education which humankind has enjoyed for the past three to four hundred years gradually culminated in the nineteenth century and the beginning of the twentieth in this view. that the rigorous methods of modern science enable us to study the world around us as it is available to our senses and as human reason can derive from sensory perception with the help of empirical trials and observational methods. Wherever people believe themselves to draw on the strictest scientific foundations, they reject the possibility of perceiving spiritual realities. With a certain pride, or maybe with a certain humility, they hold that there are limits to our knowledge, and as far as spiritual matters are concerned, we are compelled to resort to faith and belief alone. But for a great many people whose education is underpinned by what is nowadays popularized everywhere as science, this gives rise to a serious inner conflict. Articles of faith have been passed down to us from olden times. People are unaware that these actually correspond to insights gained at earlier stages of humanity's development, which then became enshrined in tradition. If they are simply taken as professions of faith, the psyche becomes subject to conflict with everything that it otherwise engages with as it absorbs the rigorous findings of scientific methodology and its consequences for humanity and practical life. These scientific conquests are truly not merely the possession of a small privileged group of human beings. No, this particular way of thinking that derives from science has already worked its way into primary education. And this outlook will go on spreading, right down to underlying strata of human existence. Not science itself, perhaps, but the kind of inner condition that arises from it. While many are unaware that their inmost longing is to gain ideas about the spirit that are as clear-cut as scientific ideas about the natural world, they do still suffer an inner conflict that comes to expression in all kinds of dissatisfaction with life. People feel a sort of restlessness and insecurity. They do not know how to integrate their thoughts and feelings with the life they live. This condition is ascribed to a variety of causes, but its real cause lies here. Nowadays people demand real knowledge, in fact not articles of faith about the world of spirit. Anthroposophy seeks to formulate such knowledge. In doing so, however, it has to resort to a very different concept of knowledge from the one that has become habitual today. In trying to characterize this concept of knowledge, I'd like firstly to do this with a kind of metaphor. Though it is more than a mere comparison, it is something that can lead us directly into anthroposophy's efforts to perceive supersensible spiritual realities. Consider, first, that strange world which all of us know as the other side of human existence, the world of dream. Each one of us can picture these colorful, manifold, rich, and vivid images that dawn for us out of the dark depths of sleep. When we are awake and look back upon our dreams, we find that they are in some way connected with our waking condition, with what we are in waking life. Even if, and this is true beyond doubt, our dreams are sometimes prophetic, they are still connected nevertheless with what we have experienced. But this life experience is here subject in a sometimes excessive degree to what I might call a naturally configuring imagination, to a riotous kind of transformation. And in another way, such dreams relate to diverse bodily conditions in us, to shortness of breath, to a rapid heartbeat. Disorders of the organism are experienced in dream in symbolic form. Just to develop a little the idea we need here, Imagine that we lived only in this world of dreams, and had no other existence. Imagine that we could not step out of this dream world ever, but that we regarded it as our reality. If in these circumstances our lives continued to be governed by some kind of outer powers, so that we went on living as we do, if the actions of spirit beings enabled us to go on walking about in towns and cities, to go on working and yet still dreaming, we human beings would regard this world of dream as our only reality, in the same way that dreamers regard their richly furnished dream world as the only reality while they are caught up in their dreams. On awakening the perspectives of waking life, the way we then relate to our surroundings, enables us to form a view about the reality and meaning of the dream we have had. But caught up within a dream, we are unable to form a view of the meaning and reality of the dream itself, of the degree to which it relates, say, to physical states of the body. We can only make such a judgment from the perspective of waking life. We have to wake up before we can judge the nature of our dreams. Now we live primarily also in our will since on awakening our will engages with the phenomena of the outer sense world. It lives in the pictures this sense world conveys to our psyche. We can form no judgment about reality other than through feeling our way into the sense world and experiencing our connection with it. And from this perspective, which one can describe as a state of complete engagement of the soul with the sense world via the body, we initially view this world of the senses as soul-reality, as opposed to the phantasms of dream that seem not to belong to it. And everyone will ask themselves sooner or later, especially when they survey all the pictures offered to them by the outer sense world, how the soul and spirit they inwardly experience relates to the transformations and flux of this outer sense world. The great questions of existence emerge as we compare what we perceive in the outer world of the senses with what we feel arising from the depths of our human nature, within our thinking and whole sensibility and our will. The reality of soul experience is one such question and leads on to the greater question of the soul's immortality. Then there is the question of human freedom, and numerous others. You see, we soon feel how different our experience is depending on whether we look outward into the world and receive sense impressions or when we look inward and dwell within soul experiences. This inevitably elicits the question as to whether it may be possible to awaken in a higher sense so as to gain insight into sense reality from a higher perspective in the same way that we gain a view about the dream world from the perspective of the sense world upon awakening naturally each morning. If it is clear that the nature of dream images can be evaluated by comparison with reality when we awaken, then we can seek similarly to gain a point of view that can teach us something about the relationship of sensory experience itself to a higher level of reality. Thus the great question of spirit knowledge can be formulated as follows. Can we awaken, as it were, a second time, to a higher degree, out of our daily waking consciousness, And will this second awakening give us insight and knowledge about the sense world in the same way that this sense world provides insight into our dream life? We can already sense how dream life works and precise observation will give certain confirmation of it. When we dream, we feel our whole life of soul to be possessed by inchoate powers. As we wake up, We feel that we now have our physical life in our own hands again, to some degree. We feel that the physical body then subjects the riotous images of dream life to a greater discipline. We feel, too, that these dream images are riotous because we can experience, as we wake up or fall asleep, a moment when we no longer have the physical body fully in hand. Is it possible, in the same way as the powers of our organism forcibly pull us back into waking life in the sense world, that conscious soul activity can induce a higher or second awakening in us? This question can only be answered by, as I would put it, testing, trying out whether the soul finds powers for this higher awakening within itself. And only by answering it can a different concept of knowledge be created than the one we are used to today. The latter leads ultimately only to the ignorabimus formulation, the assertion that we cannot know a world of spirit. To inquire into these questions, we will first need to draw, as Anthroposophy does, upon the faculties of soul that we already possess, asking whether these soul faculties can be developed into something higher and stronger, in the same way that waking life is stronger than dream life. We might say that this waking soul life we possess in adult life gradually itself developed from a dreamier life of soul that we possessed in infancy and early childhood. If we had remained at the phase of consciousness that we had in our first three years of life, we would still see the world as a kind of dream. But as we grew, we awoke from this dreamier existence. This can give us the courage to seek, to start with, for certain powers of soul that can be further developed than they so far have been since infancy. And if we seriously tackle this question, we will, first of all, turn to a faculty we possess, which even... The more significant philosophers of today admit, on purely philosophical foundations, points to a spiritual or mental activity that is more or less independent of the body. This is the faculty of memory. Let us recall once again what lives within our ordinary memory. This power is, of course, not initially one that can penetrate supersensible worlds of spirit. We are aware that this power of memory is only in full working order initially in so far as the psyche comes to expression within the body and yet something remarkable can be discovered here our memories also include pictures of experiences that may have occurred decades ago depending on our particular constitution manifold images very similar to those of dream but just more ordered and disciplined arise in us of the experiences we have had of the sense-world and of ordinary life. And if our memory is reliable, a living knowledge rises in us today from depths of soul of things that existed many years ago but no longer stand before us in sense-reality. I am putting this in an easily accessible way, for we have to start from some sort of sure perspective. And so we can say this, In memory... We possess thoughts and images that inwardly reflect what once existed, things that occurred in life but no longer presently exist. And in this way a question can arise that is vague initially and naturally only acquires importance if it can be answered. But we will see that it can in fact be answered. Is it possible through inner soul spiritual work to acquire an additional power of soul, in a sense a transformation of the power of memory, by means of which we not only picture what no longer exists, but by means of which we think or picture something that does not, for now, exist at all in the sensory reality of earthly life, nor either by virtue of logical deduction. This question can be resolved only through serious inner work, which involves taking in hand and inwardly developing the faculty upon which memory relies, that of thinking and picturing itself. This question can be resolved only through serious inner work, which involves taking in hand and inwardly developing the faculty upon which memory relies, that of thinking and picturing itself. How do thoughts unfold, and how does the picturing-thinking activity operate in ordinary life? Well, outer things make an impression upon us. Initially we have our sense perceptions. Then we form our thoughts from these sense perceptions and carry these in our memory. And we know, of course, that it requires a certain effort to recall something that we were involved in years ago, a context we were part of, something that occurred. But we also know that in order to possess the world faithfully within our thoughts, and not to introduce fantastical elements into these images of the outer world, we must surrender ourselves passively to the outer world. This passive surrender, supported additionally by all possible empirical and experimental methods, is indeed the right approach for natural science. But it is possible to begin to do something else with our life of thinking and picturing, We can try to take up pictures, thoughts with inner activity, whatever their content might be. The content need only be one easily surveyed and not suggestive in nature. Ill-defined thought contents, those we draw from the depths of the soul, can easily have a suggestive effect. So we can try now to inwardly and actively assimilate a simple thought content of this kind surrendering our whole psyche to this content time and time again. In my books titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and titled Occult Science, readers aside, also known as Esoteric Science, and a readers aside, I described this technique in more detail. Here I will only give the principle. If we repeatedly surrender ourselves to this chosen thought, quite irrespective of the outward significance of this thought, That we inwardly assimilate, upon which we inwardly dwell, that we inwardly connect with others, and in which we immerse our whole soul. Then we will gradually begin to notice a remarkable enlivening of our thinking and picturing that comes about by such inner work. This living quality that develops is one that must be experienced to be evaluated. If we experience it, we will also begin to think in the following way. As a muscle strengthens when we exercise it, so the power of thinking within the soul is strengthened when instead of surrendering ourselves passively to external impressions, we undertake this inner work of picturing, repeatedly and in very vivid fashion, bringing about a certain state within our soul. By this means, we will at last succeed in filling thinking, which otherwise appears shadowy and vague even in memory pictures, with a soul spiritual quality that possesses a sense of vitality similar to that we experience in relation to our breathing and blood circulation. If I can put it like this life force streams into our now activated thinking. Yes. True anthroposophy as spirit knowledge is something that depends upon intimate inner methodologies of soul, not upon invoking spirits in some way, but on the soul itself reversing its faculties of cognition and changing them. And if in this way we increasingly empower our thinking, then eventually, and it may take years... We come to a very distinctive inner experience, one that can be described as follows. If we only recall outward objects or actions, we delve only to a certain depth in the soul, a level from which we draw our memories and recollections. But if, as I have described, we work upon our thinking in a living way, then eventually we arrive at the point of achieving a very precise form of knowledge with this thinking we delve deeper than the power of memory is able to. This is an important experience to regard memories as lying at a certain level to which we delve in the ordinary mind, drawing from it our memory pictures, but then sensing that there is another, deeper level in soul life. To this we can now descend, and we can then draw from it thoughts through the power of an invigorated thinking that are not the same as those to which we first surrendered ourselves. No, they are of a quite different quality. Whereas memory can provide us with pictures of things that are no longer there, by drawing on this deeper level, we now find that we can arrive at thoughts and pictures we never otherwise possess in life. Through this door of perception, We have now penetrated the world of spirit, and the first experience that arises is to gain a really tableau-like retrospect of the whole of our earthly life hitherto. We can say that in a single momentary vision, to put it somewhat radically, but this is pretty much so, we have time transformed into space. We have our life on earth up to now spread out before our mind in mighty images, And these images are different in quality from recollections we might gain by sitting down and drawing them forth by the power of our ordinary memory, pictures that we could form of the continuity of our life back to nearly the time of our birth. The panoramic tableau that we acquire in this way is very different in kind from those ordinary memories. The pictures passively formed in ordinary recall are distinguished by the way in which the outer world has impinged upon us. For instance, we remember meeting someone and the impression he made on us, how someone showed us friendship, say. Or we recall the impression made on us by a natural phenomenon, the pleasure or pain caused either by this natural occurrence or by a human encounter and such like. What we possess in the tableau I am speaking of acquired through strengthened, invigorated thinking is a vision of ourselves of how, say, we approached another person with our particular qualities of temperament, our character with what lived in us as longing and love whereas ordinary memory presents us with what approaches us from without this memory tableau shows us more what we ourselves contributed to this experience what emerged from within us And whereas an ordinary memory will show us how, say, a natural phenomenon gave us pleasure or sorrow, how, in other words, the external world acted upon us, in the memory tableau we find more what moved us to go to a particular region of the earth where this experience was granted us. Thus we experience in this memory tableau more of what we ourselves contributed to the impressions we received. In brief, it is a total overview, removed from the outer world of our life and all its activity. Really, we now see ourselves as another, a second person. In this memory tableau, we do not so much have the sense of our physical spatial body, but we feel ourselves to be immersed in everything we experienced. And at the same time, we feel that everything we experienced is, in a sense, a streaming, etheric world. At the same time, we learn to perceive in this streaming, etheric world, which contains our own life in mighty images, as in an onrushing river, how this flowing, etheric world of our own existence is connected with the etheric world in general. When, as a physical human being, We stand before the external world with our physical senses. We feel ourselves to be enclosed within our skin and regard all other things as external to us. We feel a clear contrast between subject and object, to put it more philosophically. But this is no longer so when we now embark upon invigorated thinking and enter into the volatile, fluctuating world of what I will call the second, in quotes, human being, the human being of time as opposed to that of the physical, corporeal realm of space. We can really speak of a time body, for we can feel here how as if suddenly this whole life on earth we have spent hitherto is moving in a broader world of which it is part. It starts to make sense to say that the dense, solid physical world is Complemented by a finer world in which we have spent our flowing, streaming life, an etheric world. Only now do we come to discern what an etheric world is, and what we ourselves are as a second person, as second human being within this etheric world. And in doing so, we have reached the first level of supersensible spirit in direct perception more or less, because we feel ourselves now to be a being of spirit-soul within a world of spirit-soul. We know that the whole world is pervaded and interwoven with the soul-spirit nature that we contain within ourselves. But as yet we know no more than this. And above all, we are as yet unaware of any other soul-spiritual world than the one connecting us as earthly, etheric human beings with the surrounding etheric world. But we can make further progress. Having once acquired this capacity to experience oneself within the etheric realm, to experience the etheric world through oneself, we can then ascend by developing another kind of soul faculty. This involves engendering in the soul what I would call the opposite process to the one first described. First we attempted to render thinking very active, very alive within us, so that instead of passive thinking, we possess an inwardly active stream of surging, weaving energy. And now we must try to suppress again in turn these thoughts freely hovering in the soul, doing so with the same inner intentionality and power of will. Everything I am describing must be undertaken in soul exercises with as much exactitude as a mathematician tackling equations. We undertake this in full deliberation so that it is not distorted by any kind of false mysticism, dreaming or even suggestion and such like. We must undertake these exercises in the soul with the same sober coolness for the warmth and enthusiasm that arise are engendered by what we then see, not by the method we employ, as we would use to solve problems in geometry. But despite this, one thing becomes apparent. Once we succeed in having these invigorated thought pictures, especially of our life so far, which can fill us entirely when we dwell upon them, it is hard to detach ourselves from them again. We have to develop the inner strength to suppress these thoughts once more, having first elicited them through our own activity. In other words, we have to gain the ability to extinguish all thinking and picturing, having first kindled it in intense activity. Erasing our ordinary thoughts is already hard enough, but is relatively easy compared to extinguishing thoughts and pictures of this kind, which we have first entertained in the mind through enhanced, intensified activity. For this reason, this extinguishing signifies something quite different. And if we succeed, again through long practice, though we can undertake such exercises at the same time as others so that both capacities are developed simultaneously, in achieving this, in engendering in the mind strongly active thinking processes and then extinguishing these again, then something comes over the soul that since words are needed to describe these things, I would call the soul falling inwardly silent. Such inner silence in the mind is something we simply do not know in ordinary life. The spiritual inquirer who wishes to pursue the anthroposophic path of investigation needs first of all an enhanced life of thinking and picturing, which gives us the kind of self-knowledge I have characterized. The next thing is to create a completely empty mind, so that everything otherwise existing in the soul as thinking, feeling, and will falls silent. But only after we have first enhanced and intensified the soul activity to the highest degree. Then this silence of the soul will be something very special. I can describe this stage, which can be called the second stage in spirit knowledge, roughly in the following way. Imagine you are in a large city, surrounded by a cacophony of noise that deafens you. Now imagine leaving this city. As we get further away, the tumult quietens somewhat. Though we still hear its gradually fading noise and alarms, the quietness increases and the further we go, the quieter it becomes. Eventually we reach the silence of the forest and perhaps find ourselves surrounded by tranquility. We have made this journey from tumultuous noise to outward silence. But now I can go further still. This is not something that occurs in outer reality, but the idea gains full reality if we come to what I have called the soul-falling silent. I'm going to use a very mundane comparison you can have a certain capital and keep spending it then you have less and less and finally nothing left at all then you have zero capital but this may not be the end of it you can go on to incur debts and then you have less than nothing we're familiar with this idea from mathematics the same can be true of stillness silence passing from the noise and tumult of the world we can enter complete silence, as it were, zero. But then we can go further still, gaining greater quiet than quietness. We can descend below this zero point to become quieter and quieter, a negative quiet, negative tranquility that is deeper than tranquility. And this is what does happen if we extinguish this intensified soul life, falling to a deeper silence than mere, in quotes, zero silence, if I can put it like that. We create in the soul a tranquility that goes to the other pole, a silence that is more than the silence we possess when the ordinary mind is tranquil. And once we enter into this silence, when the soul feels that it has, if you like, distanced itself from the world, not only because the world grows still around the soul, but by virtue of the soul feeling that though the world cannot become more tranquil than zero, the soul itself can delve deeper into silence than the silence of the world can be. And when this negative stillness arrives, from the other side of existence, the world of spirit starts to speak to us. Really, it starts to speak. Otherwise, as human beings, with the words we form outwardly upon the air, we keep interrupting the tranquillity of the world. But by engendering in ourselves this tranquillity that is deeper than mere silence, deeper than zero quiet, the world of spirit begins to utter itself in a language, a speech we must first become accustomed to, which does not in any way resemble the language of words. This language shapes itself for us so that we gradually become accustomed to it, hearkening to qualities we know well from the world of the senses, to colors, tones, and in short, everything we are familiar with from sense perception. We have to resort to these sense experiences if we are to describe the distinctive impressions we can receive in this way from the world of spirit. I want to draw your attention to a few aspects here. Let us assume that in this inner silence of the soul we have experienced the following, an impression that from depths of spirit there rises a power that, as it were, approaches us assertively and acts upon us with a stirring or arousing force. Initially, this is a spiritual experience. We know that the spirit is manifesting. By comparing what we experience in this way with an experience in the sense world, we can recognize that the comparable sense experience is roughly one we have when meeting the color yellow. Just as we coin a word or phrase to express something in the sense world, so now we can take the yellow color as an embodiment of this spiritual experience. Or in another instance... We take a tone to express this spiritual experience. In the same way that we use language to speak of the sensory world, so we employ sense qualities, sense impressions, to speak of what we receive in a spiritual manner in the silence of the soul from the world of spirit. This is how we characterize spiritual realities and how I describe them in my books titled Theosophy and titled Occult Science. But such accounts have to be rightly understood. It has to be recognized that a new kind of language emerges in relation to the deep silence of the soul. By contrast to the external, articulated speech that we possess as human beings, that we use to speak to others, something now resounds toward us, and into us from the world of spirit, which we have to clothe in tangible words in some way. But then, in turn, such words must be understood, perceived, with the necessary subtlety of vision. These perceptions must be translated into human language, must be conveyed in words that are, of course, coined within and for the realm of the senses. In entering this experience of the soul, fallen silent, we can then come to recognize that what we first possess, this world of intensified thinking, is basically only a picture, a picture of what we only now perceive and for which we now have a language, a picture that served as the starting point for penetrating the soul's deep silence. Now the world of spirit speaks to us through this silence of the soul, And now we become able, too, to extinguish this whole life tableau we first formed, which conjured our life on earth before us etherically, so that the inner silence of the soul can also come to bear upon this life of ours as we lead it here on earth. The illusion of the I, capital, that can live only by virtue of the physical body, also now ceases. If we adhere too strongly to the ego due to theoretical or practical egoism, we will not succeed in establishing this silence of the soul in the face of our own life tableau. If we battle with this theoretical and practical egoism, we will come to see that initially we possess this ego because we can make use of our body in physical life and that this body enables us to say I to ourselves. If we then take leave of this corporeal sense of ego, and enter into what I described as the etheric world, where we flow and merge with the world, where the world is etherically one with our own etheric, then we no longer hold fast to this ego. And then we can experience the reality of which this life tableau to which we raise ourselves is an image, a reflection. We experience our pre-earthly existence. We experience this pre-earthly existence in which we inhabited a world of spirit before we descended into a physical human body through conception and birth. Anthroposophy does not speak of immortality, of the human soul's external existence, out of merely philosophical speculation. But it speaks of how, by particular development of our soul faculties, we can forge a path to vision of our being of soul before it descends to the earth. Now, indeed, direct vision is vouchsafed to the hushed, silent mind of the eternal soul existing in the world of spirit. Just as in memory we can look back upon what we have experienced on earth so that past occurrences in our life awaken in the mind, so now, After we have learned the language of the spirit world within the silent soul, as I describe this, there awaken in us occurrences that do not pertain to earthly life at all, through which we prepared ourselves for this life on earth before we descended to birth. And now we can look upon what we were before we descended to life on earth, while contemplating the life tableau still it is clear that we ourselves are pervaded and interwoven with spirit. But although this is a subtle, etheric spirit, it is nevertheless, in some respects, still of this world's nature, natural spirit, if you like, that we experience ourselves to be. But now, as we gaze into pre-earthly existence and see ourselves connecting with what father and mother endow us with at birth, we also see the unity between the moral world order and the physical world order. In this pre-earthly existence lie all the powers that subsequently elaborate themselves as echoes or after-images during physical life on earth. We see how in physical life on earth, too, spiritual powers hold sway upon the human body. We can admire the structure of the human brain as it is gradually configured, We can turn our attention to the undifferentiated nature of this brain when we were first born, how it was shaped by our seventh year, round about the time of the change of teeth. We can turn our gaze to inner plastic configuring forces. Thus we do not have to make do only with vague generalities concerning forces of heredity, in quotes. What we develop in the first few years of life alone, by way of plastic configuration of the brain and the whole organism, is the echo, the after-image of universal, far-reaching occurrences experienced in the world of spirit, where we were surrounded by spirit beings in the same way as we are surrounded by the kingdoms of nature and other human beings on earth and we now come to discern how the world of spirit works into the physical, earthly world, and how in everything, inwardly and actively organizing us, we find the after-effects of this pre-earthly existence at work. Here we learn to know the soul and spirit as they work within the physical. And in the further course of spiritual development, a third element must be added to what I have already described. I have already shown that we must overcome the illusion of the ego, must overcome ordinary, everyday, theoretical or practical egoism, and come to see that this ego of earthly life is bound up with the physical body, where it initially manifests in a sense of the physical body. But here, already, something arises in physical life on earth, which, if I name it, may cause some to feel a little philosophical discomfort, since it is not usually counted at all among the faculties of cognition. Yet it must be named, and those who have invigorated their thinking in the way I described, and then succeed in hushing or silencing the soul, will recognize the need for this. The third quality that must join the others is a higher enhancement, a more Intense development of something that exists in ordinary life as love, as love of people, love of nature, love for all our works and deeds. All of this already existing in ordinary life can be kindled by discarding theoretical and practical egoism in the way described. Love must be enhanced and as it intensifies, as the power of love, the surrender of oneself to other things and people, is joined by invigorated thinking and the soul's deeper silence, we arrive at a third level. We come to perceive and comprehend the true form of the human eye, now not only acquainting ourselves with pre-earthly existence, but also coming to discern that an enhanced power of love further energizes the other enhanced and intensified powers of cognition that we have developed. We arrive at the point of this specific experience. Everything we have so far achieved has nothing more to do now with the physical body. Instead, we now experience ourselves outside the physical body. We experience the world in a way it cannot be experienced through the physical body instead of natural phenomena, we experience spirit beings. We no longer experience ourselves as a natural being between birth and death, but now as a spirit being in pre-earthly existence. If we have achieved this and add to our capacities an enhanced, strengthened power of love, the ability to surrender ourselves to what we perceive, to offer ourselves up to it, with our whole body-free being. Then perception arises for what we possess in the immediate present, independent of the physical and also etheric human body. We gain direct vision of what dwells within us and passes through the portal of death into post-earthly existence when we return to a world of spirit. By acquainting ourselves with what we are in a body-free condition, We also learn to see what continues to exist in a body-free state once we lay aside the physical body at death. You see, everything turns upon gaining perception of the eternal nature of the human soul. But only in this way do we come to discern the true I capital that passes through both birth and death and that rests or dwells, we cannot say lives, within the body but at the same time we come to see how this I moves and is active in the world of spirit in pre-earthly existence. We come to see this in a way that resembles how we become acquainted with the human being here in sensory physical existence through sense perception. Just as we walk about here amongst natural things, amongst natural occurrences, amongst other people. So, we come to see how the soul in pre-earthly existence moves around, if you like, in the world of spirit. And we also come to see how its motion there, its conduct there, is dependent on a previous life on earth. As I said, we learn to perceive the unity of moral and natural worlds, and how in pre-earthly existence we are not only pervaded by spirit, but also by moral impulses. When we have the etheric life tableau before us, we can discern only that the whole world is pervaded by spirit. Now, on the other hand, we also come to recognize that our being of soul and spirit was impelled and imbued with moral impulses, which then surface in the memory, and all together in our moral predisposition during physical life. We learn to see the unity of the moral and physical world But we also learn to recognize that in this moral physical world which the soul has passed through in the spirit, where the physical world appears only in images that shine into the spirit from physical existence, that the soul, that the true eye of the human being in the spiritual world, lives in accordance with its previous existence. Indeed, once we overcome the illusion of the ordinary earthly ego, when we come to spiritual vision, then we can perceive the eye as it passed already through the world of spirit between death and rebirth, how it conducted itself within this world, informed by moral impulses in accordance with its previous life on earth, and how it then carries with it all this into the new life on earth as an inner destiny, which comes to expression in a person's inclinations, in the particular nuance or longing through which a person is drawn or driven to one thing or another in earthly life. This does not impair our freedom, though. Within certain constraints, freedom still exists, just as if we build a house, we are then free to move into it or not. But we will move into it, for we built it for ourselves, for a particular reason. Similarly, we remain free, even if we know that we possess certain drives in our physical body, to turn in one or another direction in life, or to decide to live in a particular place. We may regard it as the destiny we have woven for ourselves from previous earthly lives, out of the world that contains not only laws of spirit, but also moral laws through which we passed and which imbued what we have been in a previous life on earth with particular spiritual impulses, thus creating our new destiny for this life on earth. But in the same way, if we consider what originates from our last earthly life as described, we will notice that the soul's eternal nature has determined our destiny during this life, We carry this eternal nature out into the world after we cross the threshold of death, uniting with our soul what possesses the nature of soul or morality so as to bring it into further harmony with the requirements of the moral world. And then, in turn, bearing what you might call the resulting outcome of what we were in our past life and what the world of spirit makes of us between death and rebirth, we enter again upon a new life on earth. Thus it really is a matter of first developing a certain capacity for perception and cognition, by means of which we can look upward into the world of spirit. Consider this. Not every person is naturally gifted as a mathematician. In fact, most people find it very difficult to entertain geometrical thoughts that can be drawn only from the imagination. Geometry, as such, does not exist directly in nature, though it can enable us to understand nature. But we first have to engender geometry within us, and through geometry we create forms that lead us into dead structures. With the same inner rigor, we create inward vision by developing intensified thinking, the silence of the soul the love that becomes a power of perception. But the difference here is that we then grasp life, living things, sentience, and self-awareness. In the same way that we comprehend lifeless things through mathematics, so by proceeding rigorously and precisely in a mathematical way, we can develop a form of vision that comprehends life, sentience self-awareness. And so we can say that if we pursue and cultivate anthroposophy with dedication, we do so as if we were obliged to account to the strictest mathematician for what we develop to our powers of perception and cognition. The development of mathematical thoughts is, if I can put it like this, elementary anthroposophy. And once we have learned to develop this self-creative mode of mathematics in relationship to dead things, then we also gain an impetus to develop the modes of cognition that will lead to perception of what I have here described. We become acquainted with a different world content, first the dead world, perceived through mathematics, for mathematics is elementary anthroposophy and then the living, sentient, self-aware world as it can reveal itself to us if we investigate it with anthroposophic insight. Thus it is important not to confuse what is ordinarily thought of as clairvoyance or such like with a pursuit in anthroposophy of perception of the world of spirit. If we refer to knowledge of the spiritual world as this appears in anthroposophy, as clairvoyance, and we can, of course, use this term, then we must qualify it by speaking of exact clairvoyance, just as this term is used in mathematics. Exact clairvoyance, as opposed to the confused mystic clairvoyance that people usually think of when this term is employed. Now my account may have given you the sense that this is a difficult undertaking. Yes, indeed, it is difficult, not easy. That is why a great many people who want to form a view about what goes on in Dornach do not try to acquaint themselves with things that are difficult for them to fathom, instead viewing them as trivial, confused, clairvoyance, and such like. And then everything I spoke of at the beginning of my lecture arises. Yet the anthroposophy worthy of its name, which I am speaking of, is an exact mode of cognition albeit one that everyone can understand with their healthy human reason, just as you can understand a painting without necessarily becoming a painter. To pursue anthroposophic inquiries, you have to be an anthroposophic investigator, just as you have to be a painter to paint a picture. But everything I have described today can be understood with sound human reason and common sense, as long as we ourselves do not place obstacles and preconceptions in the way of it. To paint a picture, you need to be a painter. But to judge a painting, you need only invoke sound common sense and human perception. To contribute to anthroposophy, you have to be a spiritual investigator. But to understand anthroposophy, you need only bring to bear upon the accounts presented of it, though some of these will naturally be better than others, your sound, independent human sensibility, unsullied by, in quotes, scientific and similar prejudices. Anthroposophy is only in its infancy as yet, and matters that I may not have described very well today will grow clearer, will be better described as it develops. And then a time will come that eventually comes for everything new in the world, It took a long time, after all, for the Copernican worldview to gain acceptance. No less than this new outlook, it overturned all the ideas people previously possessed. Today this worldview is regarded as self-evident and is taught in schools. The Copernican worldview was once upon a time thought to be ridiculous fantasy and nonsense. And Anthroposophy is now seen in this way, too but will eventually become self-evident, and anthroposophy can wait to be accepted as self-evident. This anthroposophy is to be cultivated initially in the Gertianum at Dornach. I will just conclude by saying that over ten years ago friends of our movement formed the plan of building a center for our anthroposophy and asked me to implement it. This became the Gertianum. If Anthroposophy were only a theoretical worldview, or merely a reform movement, how would people have responded to the idea of building a home for Anthroposophy? They would have gone to a building company, which would then have built something in whatever traditional, classical, or more modern style might be required. But Anthroposophy is not a merely theoretical matter. It is not simply a body of abstract knowledge, but it involves and encompasses the whole human being. The anthroposophic investigator very quickly discovers this. You see, one needs one's head to form thoughts about external nature, and even more so to engage in philosophical speculations. The things we perceive in the way I described, for the world of spirit, in relation to the hushed soul, manifest in a more fleeting way. This. We need presence of mind to catch it as it flies. But we also need our whole human nature. The head alone is not enough. The whole human organism has to place itself at the service of the spirit so as to summon into the memory what we perceive without the body. In order to illustrate this, let me offer my personal experience, a personal note related to it. For instance, it is not my custom ever to prepare a lecture in the way this is usually done. Rather, I customarily experience the thoughts and ideas necessary for a lecture in a spiritual fashion, in the same way that one must spiritually experience any results of spiritual research. But mere thinking, into which, after all, we must convey and relocate what we experience through intensified thinking and in the human soul, mere head thinking is not adequate for this. One must be more intimately bound up with the whole human being if one is to express what one experiences in the realm of spirit. There are various points of reference to really also introduce this into the ordinary mind so that one can speak of it. It is my custom to record with a pen everything that dawns on me from the world of spirit, to formulate it, write it down by hand, either in words or in sketches. This means I have wagon-loads of notebooks. I never look again at what I record in this way. These writings and sketches are there, but only in order to connect what I investigate in spirit with my whole human nature, so that, as it were, I do not simply comprehend it with my head in order to convey it in words, but with my whole being. Anthroposophy takes hold of the whole human being, and in consequence it becomes an expression of the Goethean worldview in another respect, too. It is so, initially, by taking inspiration from the way in which Goethe observed the metamorphoses of plant and animal life. In these observations of Goethe, thought becomes very alive as he attempts to intensify it in the way I described. But Goethe was also the one who forged a bridge between cognition and art. In his artistic conviction, Goethe coined this lovely phrase, Art is the manifestation of secret laws of nature, which would never be revealed without it. In other words, Goethe knew that in real knowledge we encompass the sway of spiritual activity that is then embedded or implanted in matter, whether we are a sculptor, musician or painter. Goethe knew that the imagination is a kind of intentional projection of what we can experience with the spirit in its pure form. Knowledge, such as anthroposophy, which is rooted in the life of spirit, flows by itself also into artistic creativity. It flows into artistic creation if we perceive the human being, in the way I described, as influenced by pre-earthly powers that play into our earthly and corporeal existence. Then we have the sense that mere concepts, mere reason, cannot encompass human nature. At a certain point, instead, we have to let our abstract concepts pass over into artistic vision, so that we can feel how nature has created the human being as an artwork. Naturally, this is open to ridicule in some quarters, for people find nothing worse than hearing that something should be grasped artistically for a full understanding. But however much it is claimed that logic, not art, should be paramount when studying the world, we will not come closer to understanding the artistry of nature in this way. Here we have to pass over into artistic perception, to perceive the real secrets of nature. This is what Goethe meant when he said, Art is a manifestation of secret laws of nature, which will never be revealed otherwise. He held the same view when he at last reached Italy after long desiring to go there and believed he had found his artistic ideal. He said this, When I look at these artworks, it strikes me that the Greeks, when they fashioned their works of art, obeyed the same laws as creative nature, laws which I am intent on tracing. Goethe is someone who always seeks to enhance a merely cognitive apprehension into a work of art. And because anthroposophy is of like mind, it was not possible simply to go to an architect and request some building or other as a center for anthroposophy, executed in some neoclassical style. No, a quite different outlook on life and art underlay this endeavor. The underlying impulse for this is something I have often compared, somewhat trivially, to the relationship between a nutshell and a nut. The nut that we eat has been formed according to particular laws of growth and development, as has the nutshell likewise. You cannot imagine a nutshell being adapted externally to the nut, made to fit it, as it were. The shell develops according to the same laws of development as the nut does. In the same way the building's external, visible forms, And the paintings of the cupolas, the sculpted motifs as well, were developed according to the same laws as the words proclaimed within it in speech and song. A fitting shell for them, if you like. Like the nutshell to the nut, this building had to relate to what was cultivated within it. And in the view of many, not only my own, this is also indeed what was achieved. With eurythmy presentations, performances of this special art and language of movement, where scenes are enacted by people or groups of people in motion, not dance movements or mime, but really speech made visible in gesture, we developed an expressive art of movement on the stage of the Gertianum. And the forms in which the human soul expressed itself in the art of eurythmy were in lovely harmonious accord with the lines and forms in the building's architraves, the capitals and columns, the whole form of the building, including its painted surfaces. There was a single unity between what was cultivated inside the building and its exterior, enclosing form. When a speaker spoke from the rostrum, when things that had been apprehended in spirit were formed into words, and resounded into the auditorium. What was spoken from the podium was the nut, the kernel living at the center. The building's artistic form had to correspond and match this kernel. The architecture, in all its details, had to proceed from the same impulse, the same sources as Anthroposophy itself. You see, Anthroposophy is not an abstract theoretical body of knowledge, but involves encompassing life itself, life in its entirety. It therefore inevitably comes alive. It fulfills what Goethe likewise said, those who have science and art also possess religion. But for those who have neither, religion is essential. A nine-meter-high wooden sculpture was intended to embody and encompass everything that lived in the forms of the Goetheanam and all that could ever have been said or artistically presented there. This sculptural group depicts Christ, the representative of humanity, whom Araman and Lucifer seek to tempt. Now, it is not that Anthroposophy has anything sect-like about it. Anthroposophy has no interest at all in opposing any religious conviction, let alone in establishing a new religion but it is able to show how true spirit knowledge tends toward the high point of religious evolution, toward the representative of humanity, Christ, toward the divine Christ incarnated in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And how this picture of the midpoint of all-earth evolution, this picture of the mystery of Golgotha, is needed in spirit cognition. Anthroposophy certainly does nurture a religious mood, but it does not seek to establish a new religion. What anthroposophy sought to achieve in the Gertianum was intended to proceed from the same impulses from which also the spoken word and song emerge. And it can be even said that when one stepped up onto the podium, and I say this in all modesty, The forms of the pillars, the whole architectural form of the interior, the sculpted and painted interior, were an admonition to summon words that would really engage with the true nature of the human being. It was like a continual prompting to the speaker to place words into this space that would be worthy of it. Thus the building was to be an outward sheathing for anthroposophy. Proceeding entirely from the spirit of Anthroposophy, but present to sensory perception. There was nothing symbolic or allegorical about it. The whole building's architecture, sculptural forms, and painting were created to give expression to things that had been encompassed and comprehended in living spirit vision, not in rationally conceived symbols, but to convey living ideas fluid, inward thoughts about the world of spirit. All this came to expression through the immediacy of artistic sensibility, through direct vision. There wasn't a single symbol in the whole building. And if people say the edifice had a symbolic quality, they are talking in the same way as those who speak about anthroposophy, without familiarizing themselves with it. And thus the building was, to the outward eye, E.Y.E., what anthroposophy is intended to be for the human soul. Anthroposophy is, after all, meant to be the mode of apprehension that recognizes the longing, flaring, and flickering in people today to find the realm of supersensible spirit, that recognizes how modern humanity, through the scientific education now becoming so widespread, can no longer make do with traditional tenets of belief, but inevitably now seeks to know things, to find knowledge that also ascends to the supersensible world. At the same time, anthroposophy recognizes how an inner restlessness and dissatisfaction emerge from the absence of such thoughts and knowledge. Anthroposophy seeks to serve the present moment, the modern era, so as to properly serve also what human beings need from this era to develop on into the forthcoming future. When anthroposophy seeks to be invisibly for human souls as nurturing sheath, as inner homestead, the Gertianum was to be for the outward eye. If the Gertianum had been only a symbolic building, the pain at its loss would not have been nearly so great, for one could still have repeatedly reawoken it in one's memory. But the Gertianum was no such matter of mere recall. It was something which, like every work of art, seeks to offer itself to immediate sensory vision that seeks to proclaim the spirit to the world of senses. When the Gertianum was burned down, therefore, everything the Gertianum sought to be was lost and yet it may nevertheless have shown that anthroposophy cannot be something narrowly theoretical, not mere knowledge, but can and should be living content in all directions, and that this is why it had to build its home in a unique and distinct manner. The Gertianum sought to present to the outward eye the spirit that anthroposophy presents to the soul, and anthroposophy should offer to the human soul what this soul really demands out of the inmost need of the modern age. A perception, a knowledge, an artistic apprehension of the world of spirit. Souls demand this, long for it, because they increasingly feel that they can only come to a full sense of their human dignity by experiencing the full scope of their human destiny. The Gurtianum was something that could burn down. A catastrophic fate robbed us of it. The pain of those who loved it is greater than words can describe. Something that was configured from the same sources from which anthroposophy also flows and through which it seeks to serve humanity had to be formed of physical material. And in the same way that the human body itself, as you will have seen from my account today, is the sensory image and the sensory effect of an eternal spirit, but then lapses at death to enable the spirit to evolve in other forms. So, and I will close these observations now by comparing the misfortune at Dornach with other processes at work in the cosmos, it was possible for flames to devour forms that had to be material in order to be available to the outward eye. But what anthroposophy should be is built of the spirit and only flames of the spirit can engulf it. Just as the human spirit-soul is victorious over corporeality when this is destroyed at death, so anthroposophy still feels itself to be alive, despite losing its home in Dornach, the Gertianum. We can say that physical flames were able to destroy what had to be built for the outward eye of outward physical material. But, The anthroposophy that must exist for humanity's further evolution is built of spirit, and the flames of spiritual life will not consume it, since these flames are not consuming but strengthening ones. They are flames that give more intrinsic life. And the life that is to manifest through anthroposophy as a life of perception and knowledge of the higher world must be tempered in the flames of the greatest human enthusiasm of soul and spirit. Then anthroposophy will go on growing and changing. If we live in the spirit in this way, the pain of earthly things passing away will not affect us any less. But we will realize, nevertheless, that we can lift ourselves above all this if we know and spirit perception gives us this knowledge that spirit will always vanquish matter and continually transform itself into matter once again. The end of Lecture 1